This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at joeljohnson at parkviewfinley.org. The house that I spent most of my childhood in is right across the street from the high school football field. A lot like uh, living close to Donnell Stadium here in Finley. Uh, my parents still live there. It's on Arch Street in Chillicothe, Ohio. And uh, whenever there was an event taking place in the stadium, we could experience the sights and sounds of the event from our living room. <laughs> the announcer's voice, clear as day. The, the stadium lights at night lit up our house. Um, the whistles, the crowd, everything. Uh, traffic was the worst of it. When, whenever something was going on, the cars would just line the whole street. We couldn't find a place to put our cars. We had to, had to be very specific about where, what we were doing, sometimes parked farther away than we wanted to, but it, it was an experience. It's a lot of fun. Growing up, I uh, got to watch uh, the football team practice because next to the stadium was a practice field. It's a parking lot now, but then it was a huge practice field. And as a, as a kid, I, I was just amazed. I thought seeing these massive high school football players from my little perspective, it's like, this is incredible. And so I'd watch, especially when they'd get into the, in deep summer, they're doing two-a-days and they're running drills and running plays. And uh, one of my favorite things to watch is when they would line up in front of the sleds and they'd get down and get ready. And the coach would stand in there on the sled, would blow the whistle, and they would drive at that thing and then just start churning their legs, pushing that sled down the field. It's different than it is today. Today they have these spring-loaded pads on the front of the sled and they hit and roll and do all these crazy things. When I was a kid, it was a big solid metal framework with metal skids on the bottom. And those players had to just drive it down the field over and over and over again, turn it and come back. It was a thing to watch. Now, football is a great game. It's very complex. But if we were to boil it down to the simplest of terms, I would say that football is a game of gaining ground, of the offensive team working to, to drive the football down the field into the end zone, working to gain ground on the defense, pushing, pressure, force, working their way down the field. And the defensive team is doing the same. They're standing their ground. They're holding the line. And if they can, they're pushing back, trying to provide negative yardage to the offensive team. It's a, it's a game of, of, of gaining ground. Now, I want to invite you to, to think about that image as we move into our letter uh, from the book of Revelation to the church at Pergamum. Think, think of the, the stance of being ready to hold your ground, to resist pressure, to withstand force, to be prepared. You know what happens when you're not prepared for that, that pressure, for that force? If you're standing up straight, you got your weight back on your heels, well, it's easy to step off of, of the, the ground that you're trying to hold. But if you're ready, if you've got a low center of gravity, if your muscles are tense, you can withstand significantly more. Now, let's, let's change gears over to the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 2 today beginning in verse 12, as we are reading this letter that was dictated to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. He had this vision of the Lord, and Jesus gave him words to deliver to seven churches in the southwest region of Asia, modern-day Turkey. Letters encouraging them, inspiring them, correcting them in many ways. Today we're going to talk about the church at Pergamum, located on the, the roads that were made by Rome, these major thoroughfares 
significant places of, of impact and influence, and also with a lot of people moving through places where the believers were influenced in some ways as well. Let's begin reading in, in verse 12, Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who's victorious. I will give some of them hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, this letter to the church at Pergamum uh, was significant to the believers there, beginning with this image of, of Jesus, like we've been talking about. Each of the letters opens up with this this signature line, this, this representation of the image of Christ. And, and we go back to Revelation chapter 1, and each one of these short descriptions is a part of this long description of the image of Jesus that John saw, this one who looked like the Son of Man, with white hair and a long robe and a golden sash, his, his eyes and face gleaming, with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Here are those, those words reflective of that image. I am the one with the double-edged sword. This, this imagery of a sword reminds me of other places in Scripture where we talk about armor and weapons. Do you remember the armor of God that Paul described to the church at Ephesus when he wrote to them, encouraging them in their faith? Or One of the letters of, of the New Testament he talked about the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shield of faith. And in chapter 6, verse 17, the book of Ephesians, also the sword of the Spirit, that is the Word of God. Now, do you, maybe you remember this. When I was a kid, in Sunday school and BBS, we would have sword drills where all the kids would get a Bible out and the teacher would call out a, a place in the Bible, a cha book, chapter, verse. So we would get used to looking things up in our Bibles. You know, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. We'd all look through real fast and whoever got first would stand up and read and not only practicing where to find things in, in the Bible, but reading the Word of God out loud with one another. It was, it was, it was fun, but you can see the purpose there, drawing a sword, being ready, ready for anything with the Word of God. Notice that the armor of God that Paul described, it, most of those pieces of armor are defensive. They're meant to guard, to protect, to preserve the life of the wearer. And as this full regalia is put on, it creates this very powerful image of armor but not just for defense, also with the sword of the Spirit. That is the Word of God. Now, the Bible talks about Scripture as a sword in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 4 says this, For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Cuts deep. Cuts away those things that ought not to be there. Now, these are, these are powerful words for uh, the people of Pergamum, the believers who are there. Pergamum, not only is it a well-connected city, it's also a cultural hub. 
a place of, of learning, a place of art, a place where there was a library with 200,000 volumes. Most of those were parchment scrolls, not, not full books that we would have today. But the only larger library at this time was the Library of Alexandria in Egypt. This is, the, this is the second largest library at the time. This is a very well-educated people with, with access to resources. And, and I don't think it's a mistake that to this church, Jesus is talking about Scripture, about, about the significance of truth, about the importance of, of living according to this information that, that they have at their disposal. Not only that they would make it a part of their lives, but they would stand on the, the, the truth of the Word of God in the world where they lived in the midst of everything that, that, that was present in their world at the time, that they would stand on the truth of God's word. And here's what Jesus said, I know where it is that you live. I know where you reside, where you remain. I know what that city is like. I know the people that you interact with on a daily basis. I know the kinds of interactions that are, that are there in the marketplace. I know what, what your, your children experience when they're around the other kids of town. This is a place where Satan has his throne, where there are other temples to idols and false gods are being worshipped, where there is darkness present, temptation around every corner where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. Not only is there significant pressure, influence, there's also persecution taking place here. And Jesus is encouraging the believers in, in their stance of remaining true to his name. In the face of difficulty, in the face of hardship, in, in the face of, of uncomfortable conversations, in, in the relationships that they have, that they refuse to give ground and stay faithful to his name. You know, and in the Christian life, the easiest thing to do when we face difficulty, when we face hardship, when we face criticism, when, when, when we feel attacked, the easiest thing to do is to, to back away, to escape, to run from that difficulty. But we're not called to be retreaters for the gospel. <laughs> we're not called to, to escape from opportunity. We're called to be more than conquerors, to live so boldly for the truth of God's word that we would invade the lives of people and allow the love of God to change them from the inside out, completely turning their lives around and drawing them into the Lord. We're called to take such a dynamic stand in the world around us that the love of God would be seen in us unmistakably. Rather than blending in, Rather than agreeing, rather than, than, than leaning away from the stance that we're called to take, that, that we would very boldly and very clearly be true to the name of the Lord. Faithful Christians are true to the name of God. And that's an important piece for us to, to recognize in our lives because there are so many pressures present that make us want to step away from this place of faithfulness. Have you noticed that? Sometimes in our relationships, it's difficult to live with the name of Christ boldly on our chest. Sometimes it's difficult to live his love authentically in the world around us. And we want to occasionally. 
uh, hide, cover things up. Just be a part of the crowd. We want, we want to fit in and blend in. We want, to, we want to not stand out or stand apart. It can be exhausting. And, and it's tempting to want to please the people around us, to want to, want to not have an awkward conversation, to, to, to not want to have to go through that process again of explaining our faith and explaining our beliefs and, and defining our moral stance. And it's tempting to step away from that place of faithfulness. But we know that as believers, we're called to stand our ground, to live in his truth and in his love, and to do it in a way that we would never be unfaithful to the name of God, that we would never be ashamed of the name of God. We would never be reluctant to say, I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. In the Church of Pergamum, this was a, a present reality for them as well, as, as they were pressured continually to renounce their faith in Jesus. And even one among them named Antipas, his life was taken because he refused to renounce Jesus. And, and Jesus says to them, you, you've been faithful to me. You did not renounce your faith even in those days when that happened. My faithful witness, Antipas, was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, there are two other places in Scripture where we read this phrase, faithful witness. One is, is faithful witness. The second is true and faithful witness. And in both of those instances, that phrase is attributed to Jesus Christ, the true and faithful witness who gave his life in obedience to the will of God, who surrendered his life for you and for me. And he's described as a true and faithful witness. And Jesus himself uses this title, and attributes it to Antipas, who was a true and faithful witness of, of the name of Jesus, refusing to renounce his faith even to the point of death. This is a, a very significant phrase for us to recognize. Jesus calling this man true and faithful. The letter continues as he speaks to the believers there in Pergamum. Yes, you have faith. Yes, you, you are standing in, in the midst of the city where Satan has his throne. But there are a couple of things that I have against you. There, there are two groups of people who are advocating for a, a different set of beliefs. And there are two, two groups of people that are in and amongst the church. Is this a problem for the believers that program? The first group are, are those who follow the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Now, this is a story from the Old Testament that Jesus is referring to from Numbers, beginning in chapter 22, the story of Balaam. Now, I grew up in southern Ohio, and we called him Balaam, uh, but his name is Balaam. And uh, the story begins in, in the process of the, the people of Israel moving from Egypt into the promised land. And God's saying to them, this is the, your inheritance, this is the land I'm giving to you and your descendants. And I want you to, to claim that land. You're going to have to conquer the people who are there and drive them out so that this land will be yours. And the people of Israel were faithfully unfaithful. They obeyed God in saying, yes, we want this land and we'll go take it. But they disobeyed his instructions. And when they conquered those people groups, they allowed them to remain in the land. They were allowed their presence among them. And the presence of those people influenced the Israelites and turned their hearts away from God. And so the, the story continues 
as the people of Israel were moving in and conquering and, and setting up camp, they set up their camp near the people of Moab. And the king of Moab, Balak, heard, had, had heard very much about what the Israelites were doing. And he sent word to another people group there in the land of Midian. And he sent word specifically to a seer, a spiritualist from among them, uh, who also acknowledged the power and authority of God, but not, not solely. He said, hey, I need your help. I want you to come over here because the people of Israel are right next to us. And I want you to curse them so that when they invade, we will conquer them and drive them out so that they will not be victorious. I want you to come and curse them for me. And uh, an angel of the Lord appeared to Balaam and said, no, don't do that. These are God's people and uh, they will be victorious. Don't, don't be a part of this. And so he sent word back to the king. The king said, I will give you lots of money. Get over here and curse them. And, and so Balaam began the journey. And as he's, he's working his way toward the king, he's riding his donkey and an angel of the Lord appears in the path in front of him, invisible to Balaam. But the donkey sees the angel and the donkey veers off the path and goes off into a field. And Balaam gets off the donkey and beats it and, and chastises it, gets it back on the road, starts riding again. And they get to a place along the road where there's walls on both sides. And an angel of the Lord appears in front of them on the path again. Balaam has no idea. The donkey, terrified, runs into the wall and crushes Balaam's leg against the stones. And he gets off and beats the donkey again and curses it. And again, gets back on, begins riding. And they're at a place where there's nowhere left to go. The donkey sees multiple angels in the path and lays down in the road. Nope, not doing that. Balaam gets off. What are you doing? And the donkey opens its mouth. And where you would expect donkey sounds, I'm not doing it. Where you would expect donkey sounds, a voice comes out. Why are you beating me? You're making me look like a fool. That's what he says. I'm paraphrasing a bit. But you make me look like a fool. What, what's happening? And the donkey says, I have been faithful to you for years, taking you everywhere you want to go. Why do you think today I am not going where you want me to go? And Balaam looks and there's an angel in the road that he didn't see before. The angel says, you're lucky the donkey saw me because your life would be over. I would have killed you. Now, go ahead and go and talk to the king. Don't curse the Israelites. Only say what I give you to say. And so Balaam went and said to the king, I'm not going to curse. I can't guarantee a blessing. I can't guarantee I'm going to say something benign. I can only speak what the Lord gives me to speak. And the angel provided words for Balaam, seven times he proclaimed the word of God in this land to these foreign people groups who were gathered together to oppose the people of Israel. And then Balaam went home. That's, that's the end of the story in the book of Numbers. It's not till later that we read there's more to the story. In Numbers chapter 31, we then discover that Balaam had greater influence among those people groups, that he influenced the women of those people groups. And here's what he's talking, what, what, what's being spoken of in Numbers 31, chapter 16. They were, they were the ones, the women were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident so that a plague struck the Lord's people. Now, this is re referred to by the people of Israel as the Peor incident. They happened to stop at the mountain of Peor because a plague struck the people, a plague because of their unfaithfulness, because the, the women from Moab came into the, the, uh, in and amongst the men of Israel and enticed them, were intimate with them, and drew their hearts away from God and invited them to worship their idols with them, invited them to partake of the, the sacrificial food with them. And, and it, it was devastating to the people of Israel, and a plague struck out amongst them because of their unfaithfulness, and they stopped all the people to, to confess their sin, to 
return their hearts to God. And when they stopped and talked about why they were experiencing this plague, one of the Israelite men came into camp with a Moabite woman right in front of everybody. And Moses instructed the judges who were there to take up the sword. One of the people of Israel followed these two into their tent and killed both of them. The judges were instructed to go amongst their own people to find everyone who had been unfaithful and to eradicate the unfaithfulness from their camp. It's very similar to the response that Moses had after he had come down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments and he found the people of Israel worshiping a golden calf that they had made. He told the people of Israel who, who were still faithful, put on your sword, go throughout the camp. It doesn't matter who it is, if they're family, if they're friends, if they're your brothers, if they're unfaithful to God, take their lives. Unfaithfulness was answered with a sword. And in the Peor incident, many people in Israel were the victim of the sword because of their unfaithfulness. But amongst the camp, they were free from the curse, free from the plague, free from this unfaithful group among them, and able to turn their hearts back to God, able to, to return to this faithfulness. And I think it's important for us to see that the devastating consequences of unfaithfulness, to be reminded how serious it is for us to allow our hearts to be turned away from God, allow ourselves to be pushed back from the place where we're called to stand. We think about unfaithful, or we think about faithfulness as, as standing our ground, as holding our line. And, and it's important for us to see that imagery because of all of the places in our lives where we're being influenced to compromise, of all the places in our lives where we're being called to, to find some middle ground. We, we do this a lot. Whenever you're looking to buy something, maybe like a car, and you find someone who's selling a car, you think, well, I've only got, I only want to pay about this much for a car, but they're asking a lot more. And you begin a conversation where you ask that person to accept less money than they want. And they return and, and invite you to pay more than you want. And hopefully at some point, you, you meet in the middle and you compromise on a different price that neither one of you is really happy with, but both of you are willing to accept. That's what compromise is. Everybody's unhappy. That's a good compromise. Now think about how this applies to our faith. We are called to stand on the truth of God's word to live according to the truth of God's word, to live our lives with this, this perspective of faith. And we encounter other people. And we try and find common ground with those people. And we, we grow in our relationships with them. And as we're doing that, we're talking, we're interacting. And sometimes it's even in the, in the course of evangelism where, where we understand that, that we're called to proclaim the truth of God's word into the lives of people. And we encounter another person, we say, hey, here's what I believe. Here's how I live. Here's my perspective on life. Let's have a conversation. And our desire is to help them understand the love of God and be holy and completely changed and, and come and join us in this place on the truth of God's word so that, so that God can... can work in their lives in the way that he's worked in our lives. But in the process of that conversation, we share our, our, our beliefs, our practices, and, and our perspectives, and they also share their beliefs and their practices and perspectives, many of them very logical things that they, they believe in and that they, they do. And the temptation for us is that in the process of that conversation, that we would come to a place, instead of inviting them to understand the truth of God's word and be changed completely, 
we say, you know, that, that's very logical. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And, and sometimes we're tempted to find common ground, theological. That we would, we would hear what they have to say and try and blend it with what we believe and, and compromise our beliefs or our practices or our perspectives. Come to, come to some place in the middle that neither of us is really going to be happy with, but it's a place that, that at least we can agree upon. Do you see how dangerous this is? That we would allow this influence, that we would allow this, this, this sense of logic, and we say, well, well, I see how that makes sense, and I see how the, the truth that, that I'm standing on doesn't agree with that, so let me see if I can blend these together and, and, and find a way to make them make sense together so that, so that you can be right and I can be right, and, and neither of us has to admit that we're wrong, and we find ourselves in a dangerous place in between, where we're no longer standing on the truth of God's word, but we're trying to find some kind of common ground. We're trying to find some place in the middle, and we've compromised our beliefs and our practices and our perspectives for the sake of other people. And we've allowed this influence to move us, to sway us. Though we never intended it, it's what we find to be happening. The faithfulness calls us to, to stand our ground and refuse to compromise, to refuse to turn away from God, to refuse to, to, to give ground to the world around us, no matter what kind of pressure we face, that we'd be prepared for that pressure, that we would stand and hold the line. Now, there's not a one of us who would hear someone else come to us and say, hey, I made an idol, I started worshiping it, let me, let me invite you to come to my house and worship this idol that I made. No. It's stupid. None of us is going to go do that. We hear people ask us, if we did, hey, I want you to turn your heart away from God and worship this thing. This thing was never meant to be worshipped, but I want you to give all of your time and your energy and be excited about this thing and love this thing more than you love God. What will we say? No! Why would I do that? Influence has a way of moving us very subtly, turning our hearts, sometimes without us even realizing what's happening, until we discover, wait, I'm no longer where I'm supposed to be. I'm worshiping this thing. What am I doing? Have you found yourself there? Have you ever given your time and attention and energy and love to something? And realized after time that you're no longer reading your Bible and praying. You're no longer attending church. You're no longer serving. You're no longer feeling connected to God. You're feeling lost and alone and wondering what purpose is in life and existence and confused and frustrated. And you look up and realize, I've been chasing this thing. I've been worshiping this thing. I've been living for this thing. And I've stepped away from my commitment to the Lord. I'm no longer faithful to him because I've been chasing after this. What, what is this? What, what might this be that we would find ourselves worshiping? Well, have you ever sat down on the couch and night after night tuned in or logged on to the same thing and allowed that influence of entertainment to indoctrinate you, to subtly influence your mind, to turn your heart, and you give your time to it? You give your attention to it? You can't wait to sit down and watch more of it? And suddenly, after weeks and months and even years go by, you wake up and think, I've been wasting all my time living for this. What if it's something benign, something meaningless? Like your favorite team. 
you can't wait to watch. You want to go and be a part of the game and you want to wear all the, all the stuff. And you get so excited. You cheer and you scream. You've been missing church. Have you noticed how it's so much easier to, to identify someone's favorite team than it is to identify whether or not they're a Christian? Because of the things that they wear and the things they talk about and the things they do. We begin living for these things that, that, that are, are, are fun and enjoyable and, and they're not meant to be bad, but when we allow them to pull our attention and our time and our, our, our love away from God, they become the object of our worship. What if someone asks you if you worship your spouse? No, I don't worship my spouse. When we stop making decisions for the good of the people in our lives that we're in relationships with, we begin turning our hearts. We begin living for them. We begin making decisions to please them. We begin making decisions to, to win their affection or approval. And, and sometimes we find ourselves in, in dangerous territory because we've been subtly and slowly living for them, for their love, for their affection, for their happiness, not realizing that we've come to a place where we worship the ground that they walk on. We do anything they want us to do, and we're in some ways no longer faithful to God because of the things that they're asking us to do. What about your kids? <laughs> no, I wouldn't worship my kids. What happens when you start making decisions for their happiness and for their joy instead of helping them grow to become productive, self-sufficient adults in society? And, and so we begin placating their wants. We begin supplying for their desires. We begin trying to make them happy to their detriment, living vicariously through them to accomplish the things that we couldn't accomplish when we were teenagers, encouraging them into relationships that they shouldn't have, encouraging them to, to do things that we know are going to be spiritually detrimental to them, but we want them to have that experience because we never did. And we end up worshiping our children by living for them and making decisions for their happiness instead of leading them to the Lord in faithful, productive lives. Every one of us has a place in our lives that's drawing our hearts. Sometimes ever so subtly, sometimes we don't even realize it until we look back and see how far we've moved, how much ground we've given. And we realize we need to turn our hearts back to the Lord and repent and take our stand faithfully on the truth of his word again. Now, those, those followers of the teachings of Balaam are not the only detrimental thoughts present in the church. The second group are those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And look, look what it says. You also have those who hold to these teachings. These are people who are present in the church, who are talking about their beliefs, who are influencing others according to their beliefs. Now, do you remember this word, this Nicolaitans? We've, we've read it already in one of the other letters in Ephesus, the first letter we talked about. And what did, what did Jesus say about the people of Ephesus? You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, and so do I. Here, what is he saying to, to the believers at Pergamum? They are present among you, and they hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Have you noticed that where we, we tolerate the presence, influence takes place? And where influence takes place, that pressure causes us to compromise. It, it, it's a series, a chain of events that we have to be aware of. 
Jesus is pointing their attention to recognize that they have been tolerating this presence that's influencing them and creating this opportunity, this temptation for them to compromise their beliefs and be pulled away from their faith in the Lord and the truth of his word. And what does he say to them? Repent. Otherwise, I will come to you and will fight. Isn't that terrifying to think Jesus is going to come and fight with the sword of his mouth? Now, once we get over the shock of that statement, let's, let's see what he's actually saying here. He's going to come to the place where the believers refuse to push this, this deviant thought out of their church, to the place where, where they are tolerating false doctrine. He says, if you're not going to do what you're supposed to do and rid yourselves of this teaching, I will come and I will fight against those who are teaching it with the sword of my mouth, the word of God, the truth of his word. He will fight against this unfaithfulness with truth. That's the best way for us to overcome unfaithfulness is the truth of God's word. The truth of God's word that corrects our errant thinking when we believe something that we shouldn't be thinking about. The truth of God's word brings us back to reality. When we accept what the news media is telling us about morality and faith, the truth of God's word shakes us out of that delusion and, and brings us back to, to what's right. When we allow people to say, you can be right and I can be right and we all can be right, there is no truth. God's word brings us back to say, there is truth and you're standing on it. Remain faithful, hold your ground. The truth of God's word adjusts our wrong behavior when we're living, doing things that are apart from God's instruction. The truth of God's word helps us see how those things are wrong. It cuts us to the heart, removing those things. It's a painful process, but, but it's valuable for us to come back to the Lord with those things no longer a part of who we are so that we can be faithful and true to him. The truth of God's word informs our decisions. And we have big things in front of us, big things that we have to, to make a decision about, life-changing decision about our employment or where we live or the people around us or the things that we're doing. All of us are facing those hard decisions each and every day. We're struggling with what we should do. And if we make this decision, will we be following God's will? Will we be unfaithful? Will we be how do we know what's right? How do we disappoint people? How do we, how do we honor people? How do we make the right decision? If we, we turn to the truth of God's word, it will inform the decisions that we have to make. It will help us see which of those decisions are a part of God's will. It'll help us see sometimes that either one of the things we're choosing from Neither one of them is going to take us away from God's will, but we have to evaluate the consequences down the road and see what's right and best and true. And, and, and in many ways, it resolves the tension that we put on ourselves with those big decisions. In other ways, it helps us see maybe that that thing we were hoping for isn't God's plan for our lives. And what we need to do is ignore it and turn away from it and be confident in the decision that we know we have to make instead of worrying about what's right and best and true. The truth of God's word points to his love, always, continually points to his love. When we stand on the truth of his word, we proclaim the truth of his love in the world around us, boldly, clearly. And as we do so, we point others to his love as well. And they see his love and grace through our lives, through our actions, through our interactions. We, we become a part of this process of pointing back to his love. I want to return to this, this imagery we have of the, the, the sword and the armor of God because it's such valuable information for us. As Paul was talking about all the pieces of the armor, 
just before that, he talked to the, the believers at Ephesus about the meaning, the purpose of having this armor on. Here's what he said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. We need to be prepared to stand our ground, not caught on our heels, not resting, unaware, but ready, waiting, prepared for the influence, prepared for the pressure so that we can stand our ground, so that we can fight the battle, so that we can be prepared for the conflict and the awkwardness and the difficulty of those conversations, so that we can shield ourselves from the influence of all of these falsehoods, so that we can be prepared to hold our ground. And after we have fought those battles, after we've struggled through those difficulties, that we would continue to stand. And that in and of itself may be the most significant of, of all, that we wouldn't grow weary and tired of fighting the battle, that we wouldn't give up on the struggle, that we wouldn't run away from the conflict, that we would instead stand and continue to stand and remain standing for the glory of God be seen in our lives and through our lives. It's important for us to recognize that standing is not a passive kind of thing that we do. And I say that because we all of us, when we hear the word stand, we think of waiting. We stand in line at the grocery store. We stand in line at the amusement park. We stand in line for everything. And it's a very passive experience. We're waiting for something. But what we're called to do as believers is to stand actively ready for the pressure, for the force of everything that's trying to push us off of the ground that we're supposed to be holding. Have you ever walked out into the ocean until it gets about waist deep and tried to plant your feet and stand in one spot as the waves push back and forth, especially when the tide is going in or coming out? You can feel it. You can feel it pulling the sand out from under your feet, eroding the foundation that your feet are placed on. This this is the imagery I want us to think about when it, when it comes time to stand our ground. The, 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 all of the things that are working against us, all the pressures that are present in our lives today of, of, of people that we want to please and placate, and, and, and that temptation is to just step away from that, that stance of morality so that we're not criticized and labeled as believers Think about the pressure of the internet and all the things that you read, of wanting to, to take in this information and believe things that absolutely aren't true. This constant pressure and influence to indoctrinate the world. And we, we log on every day. We turn on the news, we read the paper, and we allow it to infiltrate our hearts and our minds. We give it so much more time than we give to the word of God. And, and there's so much pressure for us just to step away, just, just to back off a little bit from the ground that we're supposed to hold as believers. But that's all it takes, is one step back. And another step back. And before we know it, we're far from that place of faithfulness that we're called to stand on. This is a difficult proposition, but it's important, it's significant, it's valuable, it's essential. It's important for the believers of Pergamum to understand that they would continue to stand in the face of all the difficulty in the world that they were living in with 
the temptation present in their lives. And their words are true for us today as well. Here's what Jesus said to them, for those who were, were faithful, for those who were victorious. Here's what he said, I will give you some of the hidden manna. I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name. Okay, so there are a lot of people who think different things about these two rewards. Now, manna, if you remember, was the bread from heaven that God supplied to the people of Israel. When they were leaving from Egypt and going to the promised land, they had very little with them. And God supplied for their physical needs. Here's sustenance while you're moving through the wilderness. I will rain down manna from heaven. You can eat it, but only take what you need for that day. If they gathered up too much manna, it would rot full of maggots. They had to leave it, go back the next day, and depend on God to sustain them. It was powerful, powerful imagery for us and for them. At the end of that time, the last day that God supplied manna, he gave them instructions. I want you to gather up enough to fill a jar and keep that as a reminder of the way that I sustained you through this difficult time in your lives. They placed that jar in the Ark of the Covenant that remained with the people of Israel for a very long time. When they were conquered, foreign nations would take the Ark, all the things in it. They recovered it at some point. And then what happened? So many people believe this is the hidden manna. This is this jar. When Jesus said, I will give you some of the hidden manna, you get to eat from a jar that's thousands of years old of this leftover bread from heaven. No, thanks. <laughs> Why would I want to eat something that's thousands of years old? This doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense to me. So what is, what is hidden manna? Well, it's, it's the bread of heaven that we can't see, that we don't understand. And the imagery here is it's pointing us to eternal life. It's pointing us to think about our eternal relationship with the Lord. This, this bread of heaven that we will partake in. That's one potential answer. The, the, the joy of reading Revelation is we don't know the answer, but it calls us to imagine. It calls us to consider. It calls us to, to begin unlocking the mystery hidden in the word of God and return to it and ponder it and think about it in a way that, that motivates us and drives us and stays with us. This is the implanting of the word of God in our hearts. That we wouldn't just read it and leave it behind, but it would stick with us. This mystery that kind of bugs us because we want to solve it. That's what I love about, about Scripture. Is it calls our minds and our hearts back to it again and again and again. Now, what's the stone? What could it mean? Well, there are two very clear images in this era of time around the New Testament that a white stone could be used for. There are multiple ones, but here's the two most important. The first is in a courtroom where they would render a verdict with either a black stone or a white stone. Black stone, you're guilty. A white stone, you're innocent. Now think of the imagery here. For if you are victorious, if you're faithful, I will hand you a white stone. You're innocent. This, this imagery of what it is to belong to Jesus, to accept him as Lord and Savior, proclaim him as Lord, to repent of your sins, be baptized in the name, and be made new in him. This, this innocence that we're given by the blood of Christ that was sacrificed to cleanse us of our sins and make us innocent. He took on our guilt and provided us with his innocence. Here's your white stone. And here's a new name. Because when we surrender to the Lordship of Christ, when we accept him as Lord and Savior, we are made new. Our old self is buried in the water of baptism. We're raised to new life in him. A new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new is here. And the Holy Spirit works in us. Regenerating shaping us and molding us into the image of Christ. Now, there's a second thing that, that a stone might have been used for at this time. And, and it correlates with stories in the New Testament that Jesus told. When Jesus talked about heaven, when he talked about the kingdom of God, he talked about a wedding feast. He talked about inviting people to come 
into his house as, as if he were the host of this wedding feast. Come in and rejoice with me. Eat from this lavish table. Here's your, here's your ticket to get in. And that ticket would be a white wooden tablet or a white stone tablet with the name of the person. And you had to have that name in order to get in. You remember the, the parables he told about the, the wedding feast of the kingdom and those who were invited and chose not to come. They went out and invited other people. And the, those who didn't have their invitation were left out in the cold where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, hungry, darkness. But for those who, who entered in, who, who had this tablet, rejoiced, ate, and enjoyed the banquet feast. And we think about the imagery of having this invitation provided to us by the blood of Christ to enter in because of what he's done for us with this name that only he and we know because it is the name that he intended for us. This new self that we're made in the image of Christ, fulfilling the purpose that he has for us, that we distorted when we chose sin, that we walked away from to pursue other things in life, restored. Incredible image of what it is to live for the Lord and know without a doubt that we're faithful honoring him with our lives. This morning, I want to invite you to think about the, 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 the imagery here for you of standing your ground, of being prepared for the influence and pressure that, that's surrounding you today, that, that is tempting you today, that is pressuring you today, influencing your mind and your heart. That if you're not a, a believer, that you would recognize the, the working of the Lord in your life, working in your heart, working in your mind to call you to him, that you recognize that he has placed people in your life that are encouraging you, that are pushing you, that you're seeing those pieces fall into place, that, that you know it's time for you to accept him as your Lord and Savior and be baptized in his name. For those of you who are believers, I want to challenge you to think about how he's working in you to provide for you the armor that you need to stand, to provide for you the weapons that you need in your life, to resist the temptation of Satan, to resist the pressure of, of the influences around you, to, to step away from the, the, the moral foundation, the truth of his word, and that you would take, plant your feet, that you would prepare yourself to stand in the face of that opposition and be true to his name. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the message that you provide to us through your word. God, I pray that you would inspire us, that you would empower us, that you would motivate us to live for you no matter what it is we face when we leave this place, that we would dedicate ourselves to be faithful to your name, that we would bear that name as ambassadors for you, that we would declare your truth and your love in the world around us, that we would be unashamed of who you've made us to be, and that we would recognize that through our example, we have an opportunity to, to point people to your love and to your grace. And God, I pray that you would do that through our lives, that we wouldn't shy away from those moments, that we would stand for you. Lord, I pray for those who, who can feel your presence working in their lives, that you would encourage them to respond in whatever way they need to respond today, that they would be faithful to you. Lord, we thank you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.